This is Adam Fwadik from the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. The episode you're about to hear was originally a video interview. We are doing a series of webinars with the Real Estate Forums in their Thought Leadership Series. We've had a number of high-profile guests on so far with many more to come. If you prefer to see the live video, you can watch it at realestateforums.com. Whether you watch it or listen to it, the content is great. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Good afternoon. I'm George Prisbaleski, and welcome to the 15th of our series of Canadian Real Estate Forum webinars. We're very pleased today to present an insightful conversation with another head of a major Canadian real estate organization. These sessions are specifically focused on what are the leaders in the C-suite thinking at this time, and as they look forward, given the impact of COVID-19 on the economy, on society, and on the real estate market. Blair Welsh co-founded Slate Asset Management in 2005. Headquartered in Toronto, Slate has a portfolio of $6.2 billion of assets under management across Canada, the United States, and Europe. Slate manages also two TSX-listed public REITs, one in office and one in retail, and numerous private institutional funds spanning opportunistic value-added core strategies. Working alongside like-minded partners and investors, Slate is building the next great asset manager with an unwavering commitment to generating value. With over 20 years of real estate industry experience in North America, Europe, and Asia, Blair's career and experience has involved direct investment, investment banking, development, and securitization. He has been fortunate to work with exceptional people at pioneering firms such as Fortress Investment Group, Bankers Trust, First National Financial, and Brazos Advisors, now Lone Star. The theme of these weekly thought leadership interviews is the potential impacts of COVID-19 on Canadian real estate. How can you prepare for current and future challenges down the road? Blair will be interviewed by Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik of First National Financial, Blair's former firm, and Canada's also largest non-bank lender. Over the past three years, they have also built Canada's largest and most popular commercial real estate podcast, having conducted over 100 interviews. A few quick comments on some logistical elements of the technology we're using today. Depending upon the depth of the discussion, there will be an opportunity for Blair to also respond to a few questions from viewers. You can type one in at any time during the webinar. Simply click the Q&A button on the left-hand side of your screen and hit the Submit button. To improve your viewing and listening experience, you can move your webcast windows around by dragging on the title bar or resize them by clicking on the lower right corner. At the bottom of your screen, you'll also find multiple application widgets. Today's session is being recorded and will be available for on-demand viewing. You'll be notified by email tomorrow with a link to the archive. Please pass the information along to other colleagues who are not able to watch today's presentation. And with that... Aaron and Adam, the floor is now yours. Thanks, George. Appreciate it. You stole my thunder. I was going to start with a comment about Blair's time at First National, and that was clearly the platform for which he sprung to the success that he's had. Blair, just don't say anything if that's true. Okay, let's move on. Hey, hey, I thought this was going to be like the first 30 minutes just talking about First National stories. (laughs) Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Um, What's your favorite Maury story? Let's start there. Yeah. 
Oh, come on. That, that we, no you know, we, need to have some, we need to have some wine before we do that. Fair. Well, and of course, Taz wine, sure. Um, <laughs> that's not why we're here. This is not a first national commercial. Blair, you know, we start these interviews typically kind of looking backwards first, and we'll get to, you know, maybe I'll set that up. Our agenda today is kind of talk about Blair's background, how he ended up, you know, where he is today, get into sort of slate investment philosophy, because I think that's really fascinating. You guys always seem to be able to kind of look at, at things in a slightly different manner than many of your counterparts. We're going to talk about slate culture and just how important that is to your success and the business, and then go into Canadian investment strategies and then international investment strategies. So that's going to kind of be the, the path we'll take over the next four to five minutes to an hour. But then, of course, we're going to end with a Q&A. So for those that are watching, please start putting in your questions and we'll spend the last 15 minutes kind of doing a rapid fire question and answer with Blair, taking some of the questions that our viewers have. So Blair, you know, with that, I know, I think it started with First National, maybe slightly before, but let's just start with your real estate career, the trajectory you took and kind of just how you ended up kind of in your current position. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me, guys. I'm really happy to be here. I wish it was in person and we were having either some Taz wine or a cold beer, but that'll be in the future, not too distant future, I hope. So my background, how I got here, I'll go into some detail, but I think I've been so fortunate to work with some great people and some great leaders in Canada and in the U.S. and globally. So I'll talk about that. But where it starts is I am from Burlington, Ontario, and my brother is from Burlington, Ontario, and we went to high school there and and all our schooling there. And our mom and dad were really kind of farming type people, weren't university educated. And I think they instilled in us a work ethic and a way of looking at the world, work hard, be humble. And that's where we come from. And my father worked for the Sun Oil Company in the 50s and 60s. And what he did was when Sunoco wanted a gas station in southwestern Ontario, he was the guy to go talk to the farmers and option farmland. And after a while of being successful at that for the Sun Oil Company, he's like, hey, I can go and talk to farmers all by myself. Why don't I go option land for myself? And he became a real estate developer. So You know, my upbringing was, you know, at a young age, watching my dad build a business, early 80s come around, losing some stuff, a lot of it. And then the 90s come around, tough. But Brady and I graduated from school in the early and mid 90s, which was a not so nice time in commercial real estate. And coming out in a horrible job market, our father was like, you're not working with me or for me. If you want to be in this business, work with smart people and see if you like it. And that was amazing advice that we did not understand at the time because we just didn't understand anything. But Brady and I were fortunate. We started working for a gentleman by the name of John Graken. He had left Colony and went out on his own and formed a company called Brazos, which was sponsored by the Bass family. Brazos is now Lone Star, the largest distressed buyer of real estate debt in the world. And we were just working with him, buying distressed real estate assets from failed banks. And that was such a great place to start because we had come from a development background, fundamental real estate background, and then to be taught by probably one of the smartest people in distressed debt investing in the world was just phenomenal. So I look, I count myself fortunate to be in that position. I then worked in New York, investment banking for Bankers Trust, which was great to become a little bit more professional from instead of real estate. And then I joined a guy by the name of Wes Edens at BlackRock UBS, which we created a Fortress Investment Group in 1998 to do similar sort of 
situational investing in real estate, securitization. I went over to Tokyo to open a Tokyo office for Fortress. And during all of that time, I just, I was young, but I met so many people and we were doing so many interesting deals. And going back to the First National bit, in 1997, we bought a small Canadian savings company, loan company called Granville. And we sold the NHA back or CMHC back stuff to Maury and Stephen. And that's when I first met them. And then, so when I came back from Asia and they're... Founders of First National, just for people to hold oh, yeah. on to the rope here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry about that. So I'd met them then. And then when I came back from Asia and I left Fortress to come back to Canada, I was really lucky that I started working for Maury and Stephen at First National. And I'd respected the business they had built and they were much smaller than they are now. And, and I helped them and the team create a securitization platform, a CMBS platform, which is now grown and is extremely successful. And they gave me a shot and I knew them and I, I learned from them when I think they're an exceptional story of great Canadian entrepreneurs. Then I left First National to start Slate and we started partnering with the Blackstone Group, specifically John Schreiber, John Kukrell, John Gray. Not all Johns worked there, but there was a lot of Johns at the time and they are exceptional. So taking the step back, why I told that really long story, I learned from my dad, who was the toughest man I've ever met in my life. I worked with my brother before Slate, I work with my brother at Slate. So family is very important to me. And I'm very fortunate that I have that. But I work for John Greg and at Brazos. I work for West Eden's Creative Fortress. I worked with Maureen and Steve and watched what they did at First National. And I was able to work with the Blackstone Group. And if you put all that together, I mean, I couldn't be more lucky to have that knowledge. And I think all of those situations have formed how I look at real estate and the work ethic and moving forward. But yeah, that's kind of the background. Yeah, Blair... Part of you know what we're going to discuss today is you know investment philosophy, and of course the you know the overarching theme is COVID nineteen. So you've been through a couple of crises since your career. You know, obviously, your dates go back you know enough that you've seen the lows, not just the highs that real estate can provide. So working with these bright minds in the past, how did you see them survive previous recessions? Yeah, I think it's to keep it as simple as possible. Like all those teams, like they were really smart, brilliant, even. But I think if you can make the complicated simple, that's what I learned. So at Slate, we synthesize our philosophy on real estate as three things. The first one is focus on basis or focus on your price per square foot or price per square meter. You know, that, what is the cost basis you're buying a hard asset at? And what rents do you think you can derive off that cost basis? You know, don't focus so much on a cap rate. I like to say that a cap rate is a snapshot in time looking backwards at someone else's rent roll. And, you know, given what COVID is now, like a cap rate is not useless, but it's pretty hard. So we focus on basis. That's first. The second thing is, is perspective. So we also say go where others are not. You know, if people are going to buy big, big, big buildings, maybe focus a little bit smaller. If people are focusing one geography, maybe go in the other geography. But I think that commercial real estate is such an attractive investment, has been for a while, still is, and will be in the future. Sometimes all the capital wants the same thing. And with all that capital chasing the same assets, it can drive the value of those assets up, not based on the fundamentals necessarily, the rents or occupancy, but just because so much capital wants the same thing. So we try and go where that capital isn't yet, create an asset to sell to that capital. So basis, perspective, and the third thing would be proactive. And that's just really being on your front foot rather than your back foot, looking for solutions, not being reactive. And probably the most important thing that I learned from my family and then everyone I've dealt with is like, don't be a dick. Like treat people how you want to be treated. 
and that's it. So it's, it sounds pretty simple, but it's basis, go where others are not, and work your tail off and be humble, and, and that's it. Blair, we're going to get to you know sort of Canadian investment strategies and maybe look back on some of the things you've done and some of the things forward. So we'll wait to get into the more specifics. While we're here kind of more on the, the high level, rather than talking about the things that have been successful, maybe talk about the times where you went where you thought the capital was going to go and it just didn't. Or maybe maybe that's never happened. I don't know. You tell me. Well, you know, it's funny. There's been a pretty good been wind at our sales. And I think if anything at Slate, we've been cautious on where we've entered. So we haven't stubbed our toe too many times, but I'll bring it back to a story that happened with my dad and a a lesson that he taught my brother and I. So we had come back to Canada and we had been private equity guys globally. So we thought we were Shooter McGavins, had all the answers and we didn't know anything. Brady and I had bought our father's small real estate company And the first deal we tied up was a grocery anchored piece of real estate north of Toronto. It was an IGA with a Tim Hortons on 14 acres of land. And tied it up back in the day. You could actually do it just north of a nine cap. And we thought the rents were below market. So our plan was to hold it on renewal, increase the rents, and maybe do a development, put a liquor store there or something. So we go and do our diligence. We tie up the deal. You know, our dad, we had bought his company. So he was down in Florida. We had been down for years, not involved in the business. And on the day we had to waive our conditions, the lender came and said, yeah, we're going to have to cut our proceeds. You know, we can't do that loan amount anymore. Our proceeds are cut 15, 20%, whatever it was. And Brady and I were like, ooh, that's not very good. <laughs> we got to close this thing like tomorrow. And so we called our dad. I'll never forget this. It was like 9.30 in the morning. He was probably four martinis in. And he goes, boys, I've been <laughs> expecting this phone call. He goes, this is how it's going to work. He goes, Brady, you're the oldest. You're going to say your piece. Blair, you're going to follow up. And he goes, then I'm going to wrap up this phone call. You're like, whoa. So Brady goes on, tells, he goes, Brady, what happened? Tells the story, blah, blah, blah. Lender cut proceeds. Blair, I went, yeah, that's what happened. So he goes, boys, 45 days ago when you put this under contract, was it a good deal? We're like, yeah. He goes, okay. He goes, did the tenant's lease change? Did the tenant's financial condition change? No. Did the town like have some sort of mill closing, any sort of job losses? No, no, no. Is there environmental? No, 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 no. He goes, boys, did someone at night physically pick up the buildings and move them off the property? And we're like, no. He goes, he just was disgusted with us. And he goes, you know what? I don't know what kind of men you are. And he goes, I really don't care. He goes, sometimes if you believe in something, you might have to put more of your money into more hard work in to make it work out. And he hung up the phone and he never, ever asked if we closed that deal. Brady and I got off that phone. We mortgaged our houses and we did the deal, which turned out to be a great deal. But that was such a great lesson of sometimes you just got to believe in yourself in tough times. And now I think about that in every deal we do today. Like you just got to go with it. Do you still own that property? Yep. And we put a liquor yeah. store on it and it worked out well. Will you ever sell it? Or has it got sentimental value? People always <laughs> say, don't get, don't get attached to real estate. Don't get attached to it. But is that one of those ones where you kind of, there's a little bit hey, of if a... You're, you put an offer right now, we can do a deal. <laughs> nine cap, nine cap all day, I'll buy it. <laughs> yeah. What's the length of that LCBO lease? No. Um, uh, yeah, 15 more years, buddy. Perfect, perfect. I like that. <laughs> you know, you've been talking about your brother and I, I'm just kind of curious how that works because, you know, working with family can be touch and go at times. I, I, clearly, you guys have a close relationship, but I, maybe give us an insight. How often are you guys talking? How often do you fight? How often do you disagree? If there is a disagreement, who wins most often? <laughs> we talk, I don't even know how many times a day. Like it's just 
all the time, even though he's physically in Europe right now. I mean, I think I've talked to him four or five times today already. So it's, it's almost second nature because again, as I mentioned, we work together for other people. And so, yeah, Brittany and I have, we have similar goals and similar values, but we're different people and I respect him so much. So it's very empowering to be in our collective businesses to be able to go down and know someone has your back at all times, no matter what. Like even, you know, cause my wife definitely believes it. I'm an idiot sometimes and he always has my back. I know that. So that's an empowering thing. I think it makes us stronger, but it doesn't mean we agree all the time. And I think you need to embrace differences and different thought, but we won't do a deal unless both of us are behind it. Like that's how we started everything. And we also won't do a deal, one deal that brings everything we've done down. So, I mean, pretty simple rules, but I think what we have is powerful and we're different guys, but with same goals. And yeah, I mean, and we've had a lot of fun. Who moderates? When there is a disagreement, who do you call to, to settle the score? Mom, no, uh, we, uh, it's, it's really, we, you know, what we do, we've done it so often. We just have a little bit of a disagreement. We sleep on it overnight and we talk again and we figure it out. Like, I mean, a lot of people don't want to get in the way of that. And I understand why, but we just do it. We don't even know that we're doing it. So, and who usually wins? It totally depends, but he's my older brother and he punched me in the face enough when I was younger. I just have to stay back from him. So I'm out of his reach. <laughs> But no, I mean, I would say it's, we think about it and it's, we're lucky the relationship we have. Very. Blair, I can totally relate. You know, three quarters of my family, my extended family, my married family are all in commercial real estate. And it's a blessing to be able to discuss the ins and outs with people that you, you know, really care about. Because I know for some people, commercial real estate can be isolating and that it's, it's not, it doesn't have a lot of exposure to the broader, you know, broader world. So I agree entirely. It's an amazing, uh, amazing thing we can do that. While we're on the topic of investment philosophy, I want to talk about you know, life before March and what you might have done to account for any sort of upcoming turbulence and how it served you, you know, while we're here. What safety measures did you have in your, in your investment philosophy that might have helped you out while we're going through this rough patch? Yeah, sure. So it has to go back to you know, the first three things of our philosophy is focus on basis and then go where others are not and be proactive. So if you've bought an asset really cheap, you're probably okay in the, when it turns because you're going to be okay. And if you're always proactive, you're always thinking of how to, to respond to crisis. So those are critical things at all times. But one thing I didn't mention that's critically important that we learned a long time ago from this older gentleman, not my dad, but a guy I respect immensely. He said, you can buy the nicest, shiniest, best real estate asset in the world and put on the absolute worst debt and be bankrupt at the next cycle. Or you could have the crappiest asset with no debt and become a rich person. So I think leverage is a very, very dangerous tool. It's, a use, it's an essential tool in real estate because it's so capital intensive. But you have to watch how you lever your assets. So you have to buy well and you have to finance moderately because things can change as we saw since March at any time. And you know what we're seeing, not so much in Canada right now, it's kind of there, but definitely in the US and in Europe, the only deals that are happening are deals that are being pushed from a lender or liquidity. And that's when you can lose control. So I think how we position ourselves is focus on basis, don't use a lot of debt, and really be proactive in real estate. So, and that's why we went to the US you know, 10 years ago. That's why we went to Europe seven years ago. If we can bring that mindset and philosophy to larger markets, that's what we wanted to do. 
you know, we've, I think we've covered your general investment philosophy. And I, I want to get to some of the investment vehicles that you've got REITs and high yield funds and all sorts of different tools, I guess, in your toolbox. Before we go there, Blair, I think this is a great point to just talk about the culture of Slate and how you and your brother have built a culture and what you have to do to maintain it. And I think maybe importantly, right now, while we're all isolated and working from home and everybody's kind of segregated, how you know, the effort you spent building a culture has served you through this particular situation. Yeah, well, I think that culture is the biggest, the most important thing for any business. I think right now, what you want is to build that team and that culture that can be safe and pivot and survive. And you need to focus on that so much because there's so many great people in real estate in Canada and globally. So the differentiator is your team and do people want to deal with them? How we look at it is really team. And we want to build a team and no one's job or role on the team is more important than anyone else's role on the team. So I'll use a couple of hockey scenarios. Like everyone wants to be the person who scores 50 goals, who's sitting in the slot to pick the top corner. But, you know, what happened was 30 seconds earlier, the goalie made a big save. The defenseman dug the puck out of their own end, passed it to the winger on the boards. He got hammered while he passed it to the centerman to dump it in and then they had to forecheck and they got the puck back. And then someone passed it to the person in the slot to score the goal. So there was a lot of things that happened in order to score the goal. And it doesn't make the act of scoring the goal the most important thing. It was the whole team effort. And I think that's how we look at it fundamentally. In addition, we also believe that you need to always be thinking about your own personal growth. And with that in mind, you should always be thinking about who are you going to train or who you're going to get to replace you so you can go do the next things that you want to do. And I think that goes along with the team team thing. You got to continually be evolving and growing and doing different things to bring in new ideas. And, you know, those are our main philosophy that everyone should have a voice. No one's more important than anyone else. Like I have certain roles on the team and I do those roles. Did I set out being like, I want to go be the person talking to all the investors? No. But that's my job and I love doing it. And I know that's what I do for the team. It's that sort of mentality that really we try and instill at Slate. I like it. And for whatever reason, I've noticed a trend of a lot of people with sports background ending up in commercial real estate. So sports analogies are always going to connect uh, with the audience. So good choice of metaphor. We'd love to talk about your Canadian investment strategy. I mean, obviously you have uh, funds that are abroad, but we'll focus just on the domestic stuff for a minute. Aaron also alluded to the fact that you have you know, a number of different investment vehicles. For your opportunity fund, you know, there, one of the, the strengths is, uh, is cyclical investment opportunities is the goal. So given where we are now in the cycle, where are you seeing these opportunities for your opportunity fund? Sure. So this will be our second, it is our second fund. And in the last three years, we did a billion six opportunity deals in Canada. And we, in the, of the billion six, we've sold about 800 million. So we've been pretty active in that fund. So the three main strategies are find an asset that's in transition. So a tenant's leaving or something's happening, buy asset, find tenant, fix asset, sell asset. Another strategy would be portfolio sales. Sometimes larger institutions need to sell non-core assets for whatever reason, because maybe they're doing something somewhere else or something happens. So they'll sell a portfolio. And typically in a portfolio, there are assets that are great assets that are okay and assets not so good. So what you can do is actually bifurcate the portfolios. So we do that. And then it would be cyclical strategies like Calgary office. So, you know, that was a strategy on the first fund and we raised our second fund and it's the same strategy. We were doing that pre COVID and now with COVID 
I would say the opportunity sets is massive. I think that Canada is such a great place to invest. It's a great place to be from for all the reasons we all know. Like I'm fortunate to be Canadian. I don't know like how lucky I was to be born there, but it's amazing. But it's dominated by a lot of large institutions who are really good at real estate. But compared to other markets like the United States, there's not as many entrepreneurial real estate firms at an institutional level. And I think that that's the spot that Slate fits in nicely. There's great companies. There's great local private folks in every market in Canada. I'm not saying there isn't. There's a great company like Kingset who's really good and others that, you know, I'm just not naming like Brookfield's massive and other pension funds are massive, but there is more than enough opportunity in Canada for Slate to be successful. And we have been successful in that opportunity fund. And given what's happened with COVID, we are very excited about the future. One additional thing that we've done since COVID happened is we've raised a special situations fund because, and what that means is the opportunity fund I just described takes controlling or hundred percent interest in assets or companies. But right now, like I have a hard time knowing what value is. And the bid ask between uh, an owner and a buyer is huge. And a non-cap on retail is not out of this world, right? Like I thought you said it was six. Anyway, so um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that, you know, unless a lender is around or someone really needs liquidity, you're not finding real value for the buyer. Like there's the disconnect. However, there is a lot of real estate that needs transitional capital. Maybe their loan proceeds got cut. They're doing an acquisition. Maybe a tenant's delaying occupancy. Maybe a bank, you know, wants to sell some loans. Like that's why we created the special situations fund. It's very, very situational specific. And Canada also compared to other markets doesn't have as many capital providers. So we think that given our ability to underwrite real estate quickly, we can take a view of the collateral really fast to provide capital to someone to get them through a tough time. So we, in addition to the opportunity fund, we have a special situations fund that we're really excited about. You know, Blair, we were at the halfway mark and we're going to try to preserve the last 10, 15 minutes for question and answering. And so there's a reminder to our viewers to put your questions in. So we got them queued up. And so with that, we're kind of running out of time quickly. And I, and I really want to get to your foyer or your entrance, whatever the word is into other markets outside of Canada. But before we go there, I have two things and I'll just let you kind of run with it. And then maybe you can do it quickly. Just go through the other different investment tools you have, right? I think you've got multiple REITs. You've got the Opportunity Fund. You've mentioned now your sort of special, uh, the special fund. What else are you doing? And, and maybe just quickly kind of, you know, give us some bullet points on what those different motivations are for using those funds, whether it's long-term geography, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the same time, if you can just maybe transition that into some of the more bigger ticket items that you've invested in, in in Canada. And I think you mentioned office in Calgary. Of course, that St. Clair corner is re- St. Clair and Young corner. Our intersection is very interesting. And maybe anything else that's Canadian based that you just want to, sure. you know, that you're proud of that you just maybe want to, you know, explain why you're proud of it. Yeah, sure. We can talk about the foreign stuff in a second, but we have opportunity funds, which I discussed. The two REITs that we have, were actually created out of private equity or opportunity fund exits. And those REITs, Slate Asset Management is still the largest equity owner and we manage them and and we love those businesses. So we created liquidity for our investors, but we really think there's growth in those platforms. And when you think about a REIT, it's really just a structure, a tax structure or a corp structure on a real estate vehicle. You shouldn't really change how you look at the real estate. We don't. 
So, I mean, that's where those REITs started. We believe in those businesses. We have a significant amount of our capital invest in those businesses. I talked about the opportunity funds. In addition to those buckets, we do what we call separate account investing, which we'd work with large institutions on specific products or strategies. So the corner of Young and St. Clair, which our team, Lucas and Katie, really put together, and, and they've done such a great job. They've assembled all four corners of Young and St. Clair and a lot of the other buildings adjacent. That's like a 10 or 20 year view for us. And it's a long-term hold for our pension partner. You know, that doesn't fit in the opportunity fund because opportunity funds, you got to churn too fast. It doesn't really fit in REITs because REITs, the stable distribution it needs for the REITs of those size, it doesn't work. So we do do separate account investing on certain themes. We are very thematic investors and I'll talk about that globally. But as it relates to Canada, what we do is we really will do anything related to real estate. And I think our team has done such a great job of executing. We have a great track record and we just need to communicate with our investors of what we're doing. And you find the right capital for the right real estate deal. We just want to see every real estate deal. And then we'll figure out what capital bucket it goes in, whether it's short term, whether it's long term, whether it's high leverage, whether it's no leverage. We just need to see the deal and we'll figure it out. You know, I, I've been debating whether I even say this or not, but I, I have to be honest, Blair, like I'm a big fan of yours. And I use that term. I don't use that term lightly. And I'll explain why I was young. I was much younger than I am now. I was probably you know, only a couple years into my real estate career. And I saw you on a panel and you were talking about how you're not buying, you're buying grocery anchored retail today, but you don't see it as a grocery anchored retail you see it as warehouse facility for distribution purposes. And this was a long time ago, before e-commerce became normal, before and no one ever heard the word fulfillment centers. And you guys were already thinking that way. And it always, always resonated with me that there are different ways to look at the world or look at real estate that some people just aren't. And you've kind of alluded to that. So I want to ask that question about you know how you see those that last mile and your strategy. And then maybe, if anything else... What else are you doing? And I said this before, you're yinging when others are yanging, right? Like, you know what I mean? What are you looking at now that you think the capital hasn't really focused on yet? Yeah. So grocery stores, you know, we went down to the U.S. in the financial crisis because if we all go in a time machine back to 2009 and 10, you had U.S.-Canada dollar parity and you had a 35, up to a 35% correction in real estate values in the U.S., and you didn't have that same correction in Canada. So we were sitting in Canada going, hmm, given Brady and my background, we should start buying hard assets in the United States. And in the depth of the crisis, it wasn't like you could go to someone and say, hey, we're going to buy this vacant office building and lease it up in 12 months. Like There wasn't the confidence in which to do that. But what we did believe in is like, hey, we should buy this grocery store because in good times and bad, people eat food. And it really is a logistics facility or last, like that's how it's not with the way food gets distributed or consumed by the people. It, they're not going to change that plan because of the way the food is. So we went down and started buying grocery stores in the U.S. That's how we got to the U.S. And we did the same in Germany, which I'll talk about in a second. But what we saw is, you know, and I think the opportunity and I don't know how it's going to play out yet. What is logistics and what is retail? Sometimes when you think about what a company is doing, where does the logistics end and the retail actually happen? Like, I don't really know. But I will tell you for food, if you look at a food store, if you strip out the shop space or the CRU space, it's, you know, 40 to 60,000 square foot box with two to four loading bay doors and 20 to 30 foot clear height. It's a shed with a flat floor. 
like no walls. It is an industrial building. Like that's all that is. And when you think about it now, how e-commerce is, they need all the van parking out front. So when we looked at that, we were like, wow, those rents for those grocery stores in many markets, in the U.S. specifically and in Germany, they're so old. Like, I mean, if someone built a grocery store 15, 20 years ago, the face rate on the rents are low. And then that grocer has options till infinity at that low rent plus inflation. You now think about that rent compared to what a logistics facility, and I'll use Toronto as an example. If the grocery rent was eight bucks 20 years ago, and they have options around that eight bucks mark, what is the rent to be in Mississauga Industrial at the main distribution hub? Is it eight bucks? So my point is, or our point is, they actually have cheap last mile logistics distribution at the cost, same cost as their main hub. Like they already have it built and they already have it owned and they already do all that stuff. And if you read Amazon's financial statements, the closer they get to the consumer, they save so much more money. And whether you're Amazon, whether you're a grocery store, whether you're whomever, it's getting the product close to your consumer because the last mile distribution is your most expensive mile. So we believe a grocery store is a great example of mispriced real estate because it's so valuable to the tenant. Like in theory, you know, Amazon buying Whole Foods, they could ship whatever the heck they wanted out of the Whole Foods. Like they don't need to sell food. They will. But I mean, they could sell whatever because it's their warehouse in the city amongst all the prime Amazon Prime consumers. So that's how we looked at it. I think there will be more and more of that type of discovery that needs to happen. Like, who's going to be the company that reships all the packages that we don't like? You know, when my family, my wife and I have two teenage daughters, if they order like 10 of the same shirts and only want two and have to send eight back, think how often that happens. Who's going to be the company that figures out, I almost need a warehouse in the city to reship the stuff back to the warehouses everywhere else. You know, so is that how retail is going to be reconfigured in the urban core? Like, I don't know, like, but I think it's a good idea. So we like to think of things like that. And when we went to Germany, it was the exact same thesis. So we've raised three private equity funds to focus on last mile logistics, grocery stores in Europe. So what's next? Sorry, Adam, I'm going to jump in. Where's the next? I mean, you, this, these are in trade secrets. Maybe you can't share with me, but maybe there's something that you can give us a tidbit on. I think it's more of the same. And I think, you know, the special situations was a pivot for us. I think all of our team, what we want to do is think creatively, new ideas, hire young people. How are they thinking? Because I was trained by some great people, but they were, you know, they were old white guys. That is not the world. Maybe there's like some young person who's from a different country that I haven't even thought about that great idea. Yeah, we should think like that. It's just like, let's react. Let's be proactive and listen to new people ideas and be ready to go. Like what that is, I don't necessarily know, but I know that COVID shaking out a ton of opportunities. I don't mind when Aaron jumps in was asking the question that I had at the top of my mind too. You know, hearing you talk about distribution and grocery being underpriced, in 2020 makes perfect sense. But to hear you say it, you know, years ago, and then act on it, that's where, you know, the real value creation comes from. And so I was also wondering too, well, what's coming up in 2025 that we should be looking at now? We do have a lot of asset specific questions that we're going to get to in a minute. And they are a lot of Canadian content. So we'll, you know, we'll save some of that for the end. But I do want to talk about, you know, the US, we've touched on it a couple of times so far. But investing abroad in the time of COVID is challenging enough, but the U.S. is uniquely in a state of turmoil with the massive protest goings on. And it's worth mentioning their thoughts do go out to our neighbors in the South you know, as they come to terms with their social change. They also have a polarizing election coming up in just uh, about a half a year. 
So in the context of everything going on, specifically in the U.S., what are your thoughts about deploying capital there in the very near term? Yeah, I mean, we, we have a lot of assets in the United States. We have office in the United States. We have many of our investors from the United States. So that's a tough question, but this is what I will say. The U.S. is a great country with many challenges. And I would say every country on earth has its challenges as well. I think that what's being brought to light right now are, are stuff that they need to deal with. As a white Canadian male, I have a hard time understanding it. So I take it upon myself, like as a foreigner, when I'm down here, obviously I'm Canadian. I need to learn more. I need to understand more. And I need to be more thoughtful in the local communities. And so we take it upon ourselves to do that. Because I think more understanding and more communication will be very, very helpful the contribution that African-Americans have made to all the great things that America has done should be noted, and it's impressive. And also, they are such a big part of the entire culture. And I think we just need to, to get on with it and recognize it and really realize the issues that have been plagued. Or they got to deal with that, and I think it will get dealt with. It is going to be dealt with. And America still is a great place. You know what I mean? So... The one thing that I do really respect about Americans is they get at it. Like they will go and get at it. They'll like fight and yell. And maybe some people think they're annoying sometimes, obviously, but they'll, they will figure it out. Like I'm also an optimist. Like, so what do I think about investing in this country? I think when I look globally, there's really, this is one of the best countries to invest in. Yes. Is it a political gong show? Of course, most countries have political gong shows right now, but this one's extremely polarized. Yes, do they have some social things they need to deal with? Of course, I think they will. I have confidence that most people down here are of the mind that there are problems and need to be dealt with and they'll move forward. So I don't think you can just throw out the largest economy on earth because of a bad political situation. And I think you have to trust them that they'll figure out you know, the right thing to do on their social justice thing. And I, and I hope they do. And I will do my best to help that too. Well said, Blair. And I maybe just for context, you I think you reside in Chicago, but you're currently in Charleston. So you're clearly surrounded by it and have an appreciation for what's transpiring right now. We've only got a couple minutes left and we really want to get to sort of the audience questions. But last topic is really just your international investments. I think I captured that it was Luxembourg, Frankfurt, so Germany, United Kingdom, and where else? We have Dublin too. We have Dublin, so, so Ireland. Yeah, you just think through the strategy and sure. what you look for and why. And why Luxembourg? That seems curious to me. I think we hear Ireland, UK, and regularly Germany, of course, but Luxembourg seems a bit off the map to me. Yeah. So, you know, I think going back, like, first of all, Canadians, I'm so biased. I think Canadians are great. One of the best things Canadians have is our ability to listen. And we can be chameleons and with other cultures because we want to learn and we want to listen and Maybe we're not the most bombastic people. And I think that's good. And I think that's why Canadians in general, it's a huge generalization, don't get me wrong. We, we can kind of ebb and flow and, and go to new places. And I think what we recognize is that you have to do things the way the locals do them and understand that you can't go in and just tell them how to do things. So in Europe, unlike North America, you need to have offices in the places where you're doing business, right? Like, I mean, like Canada is bigger than continental Europe. We do business in the UK and you do business in Germany, you need to have offices there. As it relates to Luxembourg, Luxembourg is really where your offices are to when you work with foreign investors to come in and you have to have presence. Like that's like just how it is. So it's a little bit more 
you need to be present. You need to be local. And that's why we do it that way. And we, just like we have offices in Calgary, I'm, as I mentioned, originally from Burlington. I've lived all over the world, but I can't tell you how a Calgarian thinks. Like maybe we should have all Calgarians tell us how they think. You know, I mean, I think that's how the world works in bigger places. And that's how we conduct ourselves. And that's kind of our global strategy, but that's how we even work in our local country. Does your strategy change like when you're going to other foreign countries? Are you relying on people that you've hired in those locations or is it kind of the same thing? Basis, perspective, try to get ahead of the capital flows? You know what? It's the same exact strategy. The one thing we do do, and it goes back to the culture part, if we're setting up a new office, we'd like to bring someone there from an existing Slate office that knows our culture. And then what they do is they go there And they have that connection to the larger slate. And then you hire all locals. And then after a couple of years, the locals know how slate kind of is. And yet they've put their own sort of brand or wrap on it. And that way, you know, because I think having worked in global offices myself before we started slate, that's not easy to do. So I think what you really need to do is support the people from slate. And it's a great opportunity for young people at slate to open new offices You let them go do it, hire locals, and build their own culture as long as there's still that flow of of slate culture down to each office. Blair, I feel that Aaron and I are hogging all your time with the questions we've got. So this is probably a good opportunity to jump into, you know, a bit of rapid fire questions from the audience. We've got quite a few here and there's some good ones in it. So I'm going to start off with the first one here. And it's about your retail footprint Canada. It's not a big asset class for you. But to, you know, in a call that we had prior to this, you mentioned that sometimes contrarian investing can be profitable. So the question is, do you see this changing over time? You know, your small footprint. Do you see opportunities in retail coming out of this downturn? And given that you already addressed the small, so you already addressed the retail, the grocery anchored retail, I'd ask you to veer away from that. Do you see opportunities in retail coming up? Yes. Oh, not that rapid fire? Okay. <laughs> rapid fire. <laughs> Moderate pace fire would be more appropriate then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, I think that there's going to be, and there is a shakeout happening in retail, but it doesn't mean the location is bad or, you know, the asset can't be reworked. And you're going to get to a point where pricing, this when capital leaves, going back to, you know, our second thing perspective, going where the other capital isn't, real estate pricing is so fundamentally driven by flows of capital. If all the capital hates it, pricing goes down. And I think retail definitely, I mean, in Canada, it's really not so bad, but in like the US and other markets, like it's getting crushed. And so, yeah, there'll be opportunity and an opportunity we're definitely looking at. Uh, Next one, this is, uh, I think, you know, an interesting topic. The question is, is basically on diversity, how important it is to your business, maybe historically and just, you know, if you've changed the way that you kind of look at diversity and the way in which you kind of structure your team or build your team. Yeah. I think that we've always had an eye to it, um, diversity. And I think traditionally it's something that we just want to have the best people, but we want different opinions. So you need a diverse culture in your company just to be better at your job. That's really the reason why we need it. But we do have a diversity inclusion committee We are thinking about it more, a lot more. But I think how we want to use it is really to make our company better because I think you need more ideas. You need different thoughts. And that's how we use it. I think that we have a very flexible kind of work environment. 
I believe our average age is 32 years old at our firm. So I think generally, you know, that age group is a little bit different than the age group that I'm in. But I mean, my age group, I think is pretty open on that. But that's a key part. I think it's essential for a lot of reasons. And it's going like that diversity inclusion committee. It's a huge thing socially and I'm behind it. I get it. And I believe it actually is a money maker, not just something you do. We've got multiple questions here about office space, and you do have a large office portfolio. So I'm going to try and roll it into one big mega question about office. We won't get into you know the details of the pressures on office, both negative and positive, because everybody's pretty familiar with those, I imagine. But I'd love to ask you about the reaction to it. If the pressure is going to be for less office space or less productive office space and that people need to keep a little more distance when they do return on a longer term. Do you think that rents will have to adjust to accommodate the real estate costs for these businesses to keep them viable? Wow. I mean, that's a pretty good question. I wish, I wish someone else could answer that question. No, but um, it's funny. I was on <laughs> Aaron, a, go. I was, <laughs> I was literally on a panel earlier today with someone from Brookfield, someone from Dream, someone from Allied, and someone from IWG who owns Regis. And it was fascinating. So we have our own views on office. So this is top of mind for me right now. I'll answer it like this. Our collections in office across the board have been exceptionally strong. So the fallout, the immediate fallout from a cash perspective, it's, I don't want to say it's nothing, but it's not huge. As it relates to what happens in the future, I have no idea. I wish I was that smart. Your question on what happens in 2025, I don't know. But I can tell you this. The majority of people, I think there's two things. Our office portfolio is multi-tenanted and our tenant size is, is smaller than some of the big users' office buildings. So if you have a 400,000 square foot tenant with 1,000 employees, how many are employees that is, that is tough for them to reintegrate into that building. If your average tenant size is three to 5,000 square feet and in the suburbs or in the core, there's not enough people in that office. Like you, you can figure that out easier. So those tenants are being cautious and doing what they're told, but their reintegration into the space is not as challenging as the big users, okay? But then this is what our studies have found. The majority of people want to come back and it's changing every week that they want to be around other people. I'm not gonna get into what that office space looks like right here, but the majority of people wanna come back and start being social again in the proper protective ways. When we do our surveys, what we've found is the people that don't want to come back, the two main things are, I don't want to get on public transit and I need childcare. So those are huge issues, of course. The childcare issue, I think, will be dealt with somehow in the future. And the transit thing, I think, will be dealt with with more confidence in cleaning. So those are the main reasons from the surveys that we've seen why people aren't coming back. So to me, if I know everyone wants to come back and those are the reasons, those are things you can deal with. Yes, is it going to ebb and flow? And yes, could it change things on rental growth? Yes. However, I still think a well-located piece of real estate is a well-located piece of real estate. And if people, I think people still want to be together and do certain things. Do I think some tenants might want to have more assets in the suburbs and well-located places? Of course. I think that's an opportunity for Slate, like a huge one. But I don't know whether it's going to be as dramatic as people are sitting here thinking today on the negativity that's going around with COVID. I think fear is a, a more significant motivator than hope. And I think we're in this market of fear and I understand why. We need to, when that starts switching more to the, the outcome and the hope, that's when I think things will change. And another thing, there are many countries on earth that are back to their office space. 
China, Korea, many parts of Asia, Germany, Southern United States, like people are back. It's different, but you know, I think Canada is getting there. And, and I think the more that that happens, the better it will be. I like that answer. Good answer. And I totally agree with the concept of fear and hope over being overpowered by one another. We have five minutes left and I, and I swear this is not my question. It came from the audience, but apparently you have a debt fund. And it's curious, you didn't mention that before when we asked you about different investment vehicles. I'm going to assume you just forgot rather than trying to omit it based on who's asking the questions. The question is, you know, why did you start that fund and how are you going to differentiate yourself from other alternative lenders out there? Like First National. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. no, the debt fund we have is actually a special situations fund. So it will be short duration. Oh, so that is the fund you were talking about. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's three things that we look at. So if, if a borrower or an operator has a piece of real estate and they, the proceeds got cut, we can come in and, and tie them over. It, it's for us just to help that borrower owner get through. Another thing that might happen that we see is maybe there's a bank that lent to a really great client on an asset that was worth $100 and the bank lent $60. And that mortgage is coming up in August. Maybe that bank's like, eh, I wish I only had $45 out on that asset right now. Well, we could come in either with the borrower or with the bank and say, well, how about I give you 15 bucks so you get down to 45 You price that 45 bucks at your 3% because you're happy. You price mine at a different, and the blend is like 5%. The borrower likes that carry, and they can carry it, but they don't have the 15 bucks. So we can either work with the bank or we can work with the borrower. We can do that. And then the third thing is, Sometimes there's already too many charges and we can do pref equity with some converts or some participation and take no security. We, it's just really like a shorter term duration fund. So I wouldn't say we're going to compete with the traditional lenders that want term and other things. I think we can be a tool that they can use either to get into situations or out of situations. So that's how we're using it. You say it's, it's only short term. It's not something you're going to use indefinitely in the future. It's just kind of a, you know, what do well, you, you know, think, we, next yeah. 18, 24 months kind of thing? Exactly. Yep. Blair, I think we're getting some mixed messages here because you know, earlier you mentioned, you know, don't use debt. And so maybe it's best if for the recording of this, we edit out that part so that, you know, we as lenders come across in a, from, a, from a stronger position. Uh, we are out of time. So I want to give you a, a very warm thank you for you know, sharing your insight today. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope that everybody else did who is watching today. And with that, I'd like to pass this back to George. Thanks very much, and uh, thank you as well to Adam, Aaron, and Blair for joining us today. It's unfortunate that we've run out of time. We sincerely appreciated having you with us and providing a most insightful conversation on some of the background and history to yourself, Blair, and your career, to the various developments in in the context of Slate itself, the impacts of COVID-19 on the market, and your thoughts on how we can prepare for what lies ahead. As a reminder to all of you, there will be a follow-up email tomorrow that will include a link to view a recording of today's presentation. If you found this event useful, please share it with your colleagues. Once you leave the webcast, the short survey will pop up in your browser window. We would greatly appreciate your feedback on this event. On behalf of the Canadian Real Estate Forum's team, remain healthy and safe. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. 
First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.